0: Hey guys, on this episode we were talking about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom uh, from 1984. This is going to be spoiler heavy. If you haven't seen the film, we recommend
1: watching it. Uh, Mike, what is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom about? Well, John, the Temple of Doom is the inspired higher budget sequel to God's Not Dead 2. It's a cautionary tale about the assault on faith from the intellectual liberal elite. In it, we find the story of yet another white liberal atheist know-it-all academic and his Hollywood bride who go to India in an effort to convince a group of religiously devout people that their beliefs are myths and then to deny them their right to religious expression and worship. What follows is a spiritual battle for the ages as one local pastor with unshakable faith must stay true to his convictions and protect his flock against this onslaught of wicked secularism. Leading both men on a journey of struggle self-discovery and the transformative power of belief that proves that even the most lost can be found
0: oh my god welcome to this film could be your life i did you know what i really appreciated that i thought you i was completely on board i thought you i like the specifically uh white atheist academic liberal is is not a phrase i've ever heard used to describe indiana jones But the more I think about it...
1: Yeah, this is real. This is subtext of this movie.
0: welcome again to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the films they love way too seriously. This week, uh, speaking of taking movies too seriously, we are looking at what may be one of the most shallow movies we've actually ever talked about, I think. Right, that's uh, but arguably, not debatable. But arguably one of the most fun and problematic. This is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, like we said. Uh, and This was released in 1984 as a sequel, even though technically it's a prequel, it's kind of hazy, to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I think Mike and I would both agree is, is arguably one of the greatest or at least purest adventure movies ever. Uh, this movie, or Temple of Doom I should say, almost immediately got a reputation as sort of a black sheep of the Indiana Jones movies. Uh, it's known especially for being much darker, much grittier. Uh, relatively disliked, by the way, by almost everyone who worked on it. Spielberg, Lucas, a lot of Indiana Jones uh, kind of cast members have said negative things about it. Um, I found this great quote, which I think summarizes the feelings a lot of people have towards this movie. Uh, so Lawrence Kastan was the script writer on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he was asked to write the script to Temple of Doom. And what he said was, uh, or what he has said about that, he said, I didn't want to be associated with Temple of Doom. I just thought it was horrible. It's so mean. There's nothing pleasant about it. I think Temple of Doom represents a chaotic period in both their lives, Lucas and Spielberg. And the movie is very ugly and very mean-spirited. Oh, my God. I think that's a great quote. <laughs> savage. Uh, Mike... What is, so we always start by talking about our, our history with these movies. Mike, what is your your history with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom?
1: So this is interesting because I honestly can't remember the circumstance, which I think is actually the first time this has happened with a, a movie. Uh-huh. I have distinct memories of parts of this movie, and I know I watched it with my dad, probably too young. That's a common theme. Um, yeah. But yeah, honestly, I didn't remember much about it. I think all I really remembered before rewatching watching it for the first time in years, actually a couple months ago. And then again, this last week was the heart ripping scene and the minecart cart ride, which I think probably speaks to what parts of it, like thrilled me and terrified me as a kid. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest. Uh, I'm glad for that. As we will get to later, my memories of this movie were far fonder than what came to me in the rewatch <laughs> as an adult, sure. because there are problems with this movie. Um, that are a little rough and we'll get to yeah. those later, but yeah. Will, so it's yeah, weird. I have uh, distinct memories of s- very specific scenes and that was about it. Cannot tell you when I watched it or what was going on at the time. Sure. What is
0: your, as a slightly broader question, are you uh, were you a big Indiana Jones kid? Were yeah. You there for yeah. that or was it kind of just movies?
1: Okay. No, we watched them all the time. Yeah. Raiders was like on all the, all the freaking time. I mean, it was like that in yeah. Star Wars when we just wanted a, an adventure movie. We would just throw those on on repeat pretty much. Um, so. Yeah.
0: I don't know. It's actually a weird, actually, it's you a know weird what? one. It's interesting you say that. It ties right into my own history with this movie. Uh, I wrote down that I actually, I, I realized thinking about it, there are basically four film series that were unbelievably critical to me as a young kid, obviously with an imagination, uh, the OG kind of Star Wars trilogy, mm-hmm. Back to the Future, True. Lord of the Rings, and Indiana Jones. All yeah. of those I watched uh, literally religiously, like they yeah. were my my biblical text. I must have watched those movies a million times each. Uh, what's weird is I did realize except for Lord of the Rings, which obviously came out in during my lifetime, all of those series were released long before I was born, so I got to kind of pick and choose how I interacted with them. You know, mm, I wasn't at the mercy of when they were released. All of that to say, I don't remember for most of those movies when I first watched them. Yeah, but I do remember that I very early on was not super stoked about Temple of Doom. Okay, I don't remember <laughs> okay. when I first watched it, but I was. But I, I, I was a relatively sensitive kid. I, in a sense, I still am. I don't like horror movies, and I don't like gory movies. Coward. I don't. Yeah, exactly. I'm a little. I'm a little tiny baby. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> And this movie compared to the other Indiana Jones movies was so dark and, and gritty and, and, and vaguely horror esque yes, yes. Uh, yes, it yes. just, it just scared the hell out of me. Yeah. I was just, I was just, this movie was way too intense for me. And so because of that, I saw all of them, but I rewatched Raiders and last crusade, you know, un- literally uncountable times. And I, I don't think, I saw this movie more than three
1: times in my childhood. Well, and it,
0: to be fair, I haven't returned to it many times since.
1: Well, and that's the, see, that's the interesting part, which I had not even identified about myself. So maybe this is like a therapy session, but like <laughs> I have as an adult gone back and rewatched Raiders a lot. I'm not a, I don't think I'm a huge fan of last crusade on the same level as Raiders. It's still good. Don't get me wrong. Uh, don't I mean, ask me
0: Sean Cottery, the Ugh, best performance anyway. in any film. Anyway, going to move on ever.
1: now real quick. Um, even better than even wait, even better than Hunt for Red October.
0: Well, no, I mean he he. I mean, let's be fair. He plays nearly the same character yeah, okay. in all his movies, not really acting. So we can just interpret it as the same character. Sure. Yeah. So
1: it's the best character ever. Anyway, um, but yeah, I have never had an impulse to go back and rewatch this movie until I had to as part sure. of a group viewing experience. So there's something subconscious in me that clearly also had that aversion. Um, yeah. But it's weird because I don't remember having negative thoughts of it as a kid. I mean, I thought the heart ripping stuff was pretty cool, um, (laughs) but I never wanted to come back to it. So that has to mean something, John.
0: Yeah, I I think we'll get into this a little bit more. And in a sense, maybe we should save this. Uh, You know what? Let's save it. We're going to get to that. So the way we structure this podcast, we're going to start out talking, just kind of talking some points about the movie. We're going to start out with some stuff about why this movie works. Then we're going to get to maybe some things that hold it back from being better, uh maybe some things that are problems with it if you are a socially liberal person and you're wondering when we're going to start talking about the elephants in the room that is when we will get to those oh yes we promise oh yes there are deep problems with <laughs> oh, this movie yes. <laughs> we are not glossing that over but first we're going to start with why it works then why it doesn't work share some stray thoughts and then later on in the episode get to some essays that mike and i have each prepared but let's just start with why this movie works and and the things that it does do well. Yeah. I think the biggest thing to start with, I'm, I'm going to quote an article that I sent to Mike. Uh, it's from one of my favorite uh, online sort of film critics. His name is Film Crit Hulk. It's an alias for a screenwriter. Uh, it's not clear who the screenwriter is, actually, but he's, he seems to sort of know a lot about movies and stuff. Uh, this quote is actually from an article he wrote in 2014 uh, talking about Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom moves from beat to beat with cause and effect, clear purpose, and intent. It's practically a Rube Goldberg machine. Go back and you'll notice there isn't a single and then beat in the entire film, but instead it exists as an interlocking series of emotional and visceral triggers that push us from scene to scene. And Spielberg's intent with each of these moments could not be clearer. Shock, scare, bring laughs, dread, cheer and do all of these things as many times as possible. It comes right at you and it never lets up. That was a perspective. I think I lacked about this movie until reading that article two or three years ago, I'm going to put a link to the article in the show notes, uh, But So just to start with, this movie, and a quote I didn't read, he calls this a funhouse movie. Mm. This is such a viscerally pleasurable movie, it's insane. Yeah. The amount of stuff that's just, it it, it reminds me of watching Jaws in the way that you are just constantly on the edge of your seat. And he's right, there's every scene, there's something that's just funny or something that's just super gross or something that's just exciting or action-packed or whatever, he just doesn't let up. It's yeah. just, it's two hours of just a roller coaster. Uh, that's my biggest thing in terms of why this movie works. It's just such pure entertainment, which obviously we know Spielberg's good at, uh, but he just sells out to it in this movie. What do you, what do you think about?
1: Well, Jeff? first I take a note every time you mention jaws, which is every podcast ever. And boom, <laughs> already got like first 10 minutes. We're done. Ta- it's a Spielberg. Movie. Check. We're talking about Spielberg. Bro, you talk about it in like, I don't know, what's eating Gilbert grape? We could talk about it. Anyway, I'm going to move off of that. Um, Yeah, so this is one of those moments where you sent me that article. And it's one of those moments where like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Because you're right. I mean, he's just right. This film has an unbelievable dedication to being linear. Everything follows mm. a step-by-step logic, one move to the next, like one scene to the next. It's lean to the point and unbelievably easy to follow. In fact, yeah, he the whoever wrote this movie, I, I don't actually know the answer to that, but does a really interesting part of playing with that where all the exposition and conversation that moves the plot forward takes place very quickly in the natural scenes of just one thing to the next to the next. Like, it's never like they go to a different room to have a conversation to set up the plot. And then they return to the adventure. It is literally like, as we're passing through this logical progression of scenes, here's a brief conversation about some gym. Right. And then on they go again. And I think what you just said sums it up perfectly. It's so sold out to that concept. I think a lot of films Mm -hmm. do this, you know, they dabble in being that linear, this film is just like, nope. The entirety of this film is going to be a linear progression that is impossible not to follow. And yep. that's wild. I don't know if I admire that, but it's really effective. So I I don't know.
0: I, I don't know if you'll I don't know if you'll track Sorry, real briefly. Yeah. Uh Willard Hyuk and Gloria Katz are the writers. Uh, okay. Just to just to make sure we shout that shout out. Shout out. I don't know if you'll track with this thought process, but in a way what you're describing reminded me of John Wick. Yeah. I wrote that down that it feels like the John Wick of Spielberg adventure movies. It's almost surreal in how unabashedly sold out to its own premise it is. Yeah. yeah. It just it's it, cuz you're right. It's just it's it there's a linearity there. There's a a leanness to it it's just it's trying to grab you and just not let go and keep you locked into the central idea to the central plot moving you forward um, Well, and
1: and i love the metaphor he uses of fun house like it literally yeah. feels like i'm at a carnival and you walk into the room of mirrors you figure out how to get out of it and then it's a room where a guy jumps out at you and scares you right yeah. And every scene of this movie is a room to room flow with this flavor of create trouble, get out of it, right? Yeah. And that, and that dedication to how that is literally every scene is certainly respectable, but also just makes it, it just makes it fun. And then obviously, like you were saying, he's sold out to the live action horror elements, whether it's jump scares with skeletons or the bugs on the ground or trap doors and booby traps and. Whatever else, there's just like that fun house quality. My, yeah, it's that wild. That bug scene, rewatching it, still gets me so
0: hard. All these <laughs> so movies gross. have a little gross-out scene. In the first movie, it's the snakes. In the third movie, it's the rats. Neither of those do much for me. That bug scene is is like a primal horror that I feel. Yeah, and I think I you know there is so much in this movie that is like over the top, darker than its predecessors and or, or sorry then it's the other two movies in the series and stuff like that you just sense that they were there was almost uh there was almost something gleeful in how sadistic he was yeah they were being with some of this stuff like that is just ah god well, no, just, yeah. and it, but but it's effective it's what you're saying it, it i was there i mean this is a 40 year old movie almost and i was completely you know locked into the screen rewatching it uh, a few nights ago
1: absolutely like and th- maybe this is just another way of saying what we've already said but what i wrote down word for word in my notes and you just use this word i said this movie is shamelessly gleeful about being a glorified yeah. b-movie and, yeah. and, and and just, that's
0: fundamentally what it is
1: yeah i mean there's like scenes in this movie that are just they're just scenes from a grindhouse movie like the heart ripping in particular <laughs> But even in, like, the scenes that are really well done, like the opening fight sequence, right? He stabs a dude with a flaming pork skewer. And the guy's like, ah! Yeah. You're like, that's B-movie stuff. Like, this is a B-movie. Yeah. This is ridiculous. But you're right. It's so much fun. And you, you can't look away. I mean, it has so it's yeah. so fast that you can't look away. And
0: again. You know, you just reminded me. We sorry, real quick. We yeah. haven't even talked about the movie opens with a Broadway musical number, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> straight from the four it's just it's so insane. It's just like every single element, they just cranked it up to eleven for some reason. I don't know why they went so hard, but it does make, especially in the hands of a very good filmmaker, and I think that is something to zero in on real quick, is that without we we've already done um ET on this podcast. I think that's the only Spielberg we've done, right? Yeah. Um, and we talked about it there, but it's just worth reiterating. Spielberg is so good at making you feel what he wants you to feel. Yeah. And, yeah. and and making you invested in what he wants you to be invested in. In other hands, this movie would be probably kind of a train wreck. Well, yeah. If nothing else, it wouldn't keep you invested for that long. So- I think that... It's so fun throughout just because of his ability. That's
1: a great point because that was something else I wrote down was I think if this movie was made today, it would be one of two things. It would either almost assuredly it would take itself too seriously, right?
0: Yeah,
1: um which even movies like John Wick run the cr- almost cross that line where it's like, but <laughs> as we talk about John Wick, that's a good thing because they want you to like they want you to feel like they're not winking at you at any point in that movie. I think sure. there's like a, this movie could have been like that and been a train wreck or the director could have been apologetic where it's like, yeah. I know this is really campy and bad, but, mm. you know, wink, wink, haha. And there's something really admirable about, like you said, a unbelief, a, a master of the craft made this movie so unapologetically campy, gory, B-movie-esque and yeah. never once apologizes to you for it. Like, he just doesn't care? I think that's fantastic. I mean... So, so on the one hand, I think this
0: movie is walking this line where where it could take itself too seriously something like the rock right or con maybe even con air i don't know if that i don't think that one applies i don't think that one applies this movie could be taking itself too seriously though but it's also not so it could on the one hand be like that on the other hand it could have been like a sharknado yeah right exactly where it's like exactly so aware of how stupid it is that it just you sort of lose the fun of it it just becomes like kind of hokey and it it walks between both those lines it knows how dumb it is but it's also not sort of playing to that it's also still gonna be like well I'm still masterful in how I arrange some of these scenes and how I keep the
1: pacing up keep the
0: excitement up keep the the fun up it's a fun movie it's an entertaining movie
1: well yeah like to, to speak to that is there a better example than the fact that in this same movie there is the opening scene which is a masterful opening scene Like you said, it goes from this Broadway to this really intense conversation. You know, every part of that fight is fantastic all the way up until the point he jumps out the window and it's a car chase and they're in the plane. And then it's followed by them jumping out of a plane with a boat and then riding (laughs) down a mountain off a cliff into rapids and then surviving and they never really address how absurd that is. And you're just no, like, it's, it's fine. these are back to back in the movie. <laughs> and the, and yeah. Spielberg's like, eat all of it. You don't get to pick which part of the meal you take. Eat it all. <laughs> yeah. like, you need all of it. Uh, I
0: totally agree. I think it's, it's absolutely one of the strengths of this movie. Uh, getting into other things, why it works. I guess this is heavily related. I, I did write down pacing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in hindsight, I do think it, it does sort of drag in some places of the middle we'll get to that a little bit later but for the most part especially the first act and the third act i think are just just perfectly paced the first act especially like you said you were just you're moving so fast the dialogue is keeping you up the uh the world building what's what's word i'm looking for the exposition Mm -hmm. is delivered in such a way that it's not dragging the movie's pace down and i think the third act too whenever at the point where we're uh indiana gets gets sort of rescued from his mind control state uh basically from then on it's equally just so well paced it it keeps it short it's not and it gets back to what we're saying the movie knows what kind of movie it is it knows that it's not going to you know get into this whole complex ideas about uh you know anything it's just it's just keeping that pace up it's just knowingly being fun and entertaining and kind of shallow yeah Uh, i mean it's
1: like you know there again a worse movie would have had more exposition on how any of this works like the magic stones and stuff and these guys are just like, they go to a village and they're like, this magic stone makes our crops and stuff work. And someone took it, You're so like, go get gold. it. <laughs> and everyone's like, okay, <laughs> sounds great. Oh, yeah, yeah, it sounds, sounds good, yeah. yeah. Doesn't <laughs> really Because it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't. No one cares. I don't care. And that's what I love about the movie is he knows I don't care and he honors that. I mean, that's fantastic. Uh, again, yeah. a, I guess here's a great way of putting it. A more insecure filmmaker would have tried to explain themselves. Spielberg sure. is I like, I am money. super secure. I do not care if you like this or not. Just here. Take it, right? And I'm not going to yeah. explain myself. And that's great. No. That's great. I think I I totally agree. Uh,
0: do you have other things why this movie works, what what this movie has going for it?
1: Yeah, I actually had a I really want to spend time talking about a couple of the technical sides of it. You know, sure. and this two of these can be pretty quick, but Kind of connected to the B movie side, the atmosphere, especially in how it achieves atmosphere through lighting and set design, really fits yeah. into that grindhouse, funhouse kind of thing. Especially like the temple scenes themselves, you know, uh, a yeah. lot of reds, a lot of hot colors, playing with shadows, really effective use of of fire and sh- and darkness. And yeah. there's just a couple times where you're like this is just a really cool set, but it, it all together it adds to it. And in a similar vein, I mean the soundtrack is so good at producing that sense of excitement and speed and it's just great. Yeah. It all plays together into those themes we've already named though, but it's really cool. Yeah. I I don't want to go on too much of
0: a, of a mini rant or mini monologue about the music, but suffice it to say those, those movies I mentioned earlier, star Wars, back to the future, Lord of the Rings and uh, Indiana Jones, all four of them also had notably uh, uh, uplifting music or that's not even the word, but, I don't know how to say it. The music of all of those movies just does such a good job reflecting the adventuresome spirit of those movies. Yeah, And actually Indiana Jones is one of the best themes ever. And this movie, you know, it goes hard with it and it does a great job of it. Um, Yeah. And then real quick on the, on the set design and stuff, I don't want to sound too much like an old man, uh, but I I did rewatching this movie. I I just sort of, I shed a, a little tear for uh physical sets oh my gosh and, yes. and and practical effects like everything in this movie still looks so good like yeah. and obviously there's moments that are like yeah whatever maybe that didn't age perfectly but i think it's more it's more than made up for things like you said like the actual temple of doom it looks stunning yeah. it's this huge huge set with all of these different interlocking things you just want to go there and walk around and and I just don't get that from the, the modern all digital sort of things is that most of the time not always but most of the time it just ends up feeling kind of fake. Yeah. Plasticky. Kind of, you know, you know, like like you know you can't walk around around there and, and yeah, there's just so much thought and detail into all of the physical sets. I, I just love it and it makes me a little sad. Yeah, uh, I never anyway, wanted old man old man right over. I never
1: wanted to visit and meander around Thanos' spaceship. You know, it's just yeah, like, exactly. There is. You're right. There is something about like, man, I would I would actually want to go visit that set and just check this yeah. out, right? And yeah, and yeah. I mean, I think you can we can marvel at the advancement in technology and still lament mm. how good a physical set can be, as seen in a movie like this, and how good it can be at capturing this holistic tone and and purpose that he clearly has underlying this entire movie, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The other two things. I really wanted to hit on were the two scenes that I remember from childhood because both of those hold up so well. And I actually think it's, it's, I don't know, track with me. It's it is really impressive that the scenes that stuck with me from when I was 12 and saw this movie were the scenes that most impressed me at 30 rewatching it. So that's the human sacrifice scene is just like unbelievably done from a technical side of things. Right. Yeah. I mean, the horror level is kicked up to a thousand, both through the actual effects of it, the lighting, but then like the music and how it intensifies and the chanting. You're just like, this is a freaking awesome scene. I don't know. It's yeah. super good. Um, but I really want to spend some time on the minecart scene because from a technical aspect, that scene is so much better than just can't be fun. I mean, can we sit with that yeah. for a second? What are your thoughts on say, that scene? Yeah, I mean,
0: I so first of all, I obviously agree. I think those are two two standouts. <laughs> Um, I think with something like the minecart scene, the thing that people very much underestimate, and again, not to get too old manny, but I think about this a lot with with modern movies and especially like superhero movies, is it, it is very very hard to make action coherent. Yeah, and in fact, it's so hard that most people don't, and that's the thing I notice with a lot of, of you know more recent action movies is that you can actually make a. a an action scene feel kind of intense and feel kind of engaging by just having some sort of quick cuts yeah. and some, you know, stuff kind of moving in it and the characters are responding like out of intensity. That all feels like sort of engaging and sort of intense, but it, there's something hollow about it. Sure. I think the thing I so appreciate about action scenes like this and the way that Spielberg does a lot of action scenes is that there's a coherence there you know what's going on that entire minecart scene yeah you can place in your head their cart and the cart behind them and the ways that the that the characters are doing things and, and and the ways that they're interacting and throwing the log down for the other one to go off and whatever all that like again i think people take it for granted because he makes it look easy he makes it feel like oh well he's just shooting it and then you're you're following along but that is so hard to do effectively mm-hmm. to make that, you know, where where, again, I just have a very coherent internal picture of how this action is playing out and I can follow along. It reminds me a lot of I mean, again, Spielberg's great at this. So, like, you, I think about the T-Rex scene in Jurassic Park, right? sure, yeah, which is like this this 10 or 15 minute long scene. And at every moment, you know exactly where all the principal actors are. And again, that's actually very, very hard to do. So I think about that with the, with the minecart chase specifically. It's it's so good.
1: Yeah, man, that's spot on. Yeah, I mean, gosh. Yeah, no, I think um, one of the things that, as you were talking, I was thinking about is, like, you know, when I go watch Guardians of the Galaxy, I'll go watch even John Wick. I mean, any other modern master, not master, any other modern action movie. Um, I'm not... Calling Guardians of the G- Galaxy a masterpiece—I overuse that word. I just want to clarify that is not one of them. Um, <laughs> I do like it though. But anyway, yeah. What I what is what is interesting about those movies is like you know they'll have these action set pieces that are super fun, super thrilling. But I feel like I'm observing them all the time. Like there's a distance sure. between me and it. And what I really noticed on this rewatch of this particular scene is how deeply because of his directing choices you feel like you are in the minecart with them right oh yeah Um, the way that he shoots it behind the cart from inside the cart I mean I don't know how else to say it other than I felt like I was on a roller coaster as I was on my couch right and it's all through like you were you were talking about like really small things like the hard jerking of a camera when the cart goes around a corner or a curve or the way that bullets are whizzing by or bad guys are jumping in and out of the frame and you know they're there the entire time, but you can't see them because it's giving you perspective. And it feels yeah. like you're perspective somehow. And there's just a f- super that is so hard to do. And it feels so effortless in this movie. Like you really yeah. feel like you're in it, the carts flying, you can almost feel like the wind coming at you. You almost like want to duck when beams and stuff are coming. <laughs> it, I don't know. It's it's amazing. And I honestly don't know how they shot this in the 80s. But it makes yeah, me it's crazy. even more impressed by him. But yeah, I don't think movies with the CGI can make me feel like I'm in the world. It's like, all I'm saying. And in sure. this scene in particular, I was like, I am in this minecart. And I feel every turn and every break and every... And that's, that's... I don't know. I have no words for that. It's just really cool.
0: I, I would, just as a brief note, I would push back very slightly. I think movies with CGI can do that. Sure. But they also can shortcut they also have a shortcut to making it pretty fun and not putting in the effort. I think it goes back to effort. Yeah. I know you're going to, I know, I know the response I'm going to get, but I'm going to say it anyways. James Cameron is very good at this and avatar is very, a very good example of this. That's was all I'm going to say. Was
1: it the 3d goggles? It's no, 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 no. Was it We're the not going to do whole
0: avatar bit where all you guys <laughs> hate on a movie. That's a great movie.
1: We're, was it? Was it because uh, it literally brought you into the world? I
0: defy you. I'm just going to say it. We're going to get to the movie one day. Uh, I'm going to trade you for Point Break or something. And the last action scene in that movie, the way that he combines physical and CGI, and the way he shoots it, it's still a very compelling action scene. That's all I'm going to say. Hey, you can this do is uh, with CGI.
1: This is John and Mike, and welcome to the Avatar podcast. where Welcome each week to the Avatar we podcast. About where each Avatar. week.
0: Uh, <laughs> I would do that where every week I defend it and every week you attack it. <laughs> That's a great idea. I want to go back slightly to the heart ripping scene. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, I found this quote. Um, this is Steven Spielberg in 1989. I wasn't happy with Temple of Doom at all. It was too dark, too subterranean, and much too horrific. I thought it outpoltered Poltergeist. There's not an ounce of my own personal feeling in Temple of Doom which is a much harsher take than I would necessarily uh, uh, provide. The thing I want to center on is when he said it, it's, it's much too horrific. Mm. This scene is really the yeah. center of that entire yeah. conversation. Yeah, and I think it is the I mean, whole I, conversation. Re- oh, yeah. And I mean, like, I've rewatched this movie since I was a little kid, and that scene still gets me with yeah. how, it's like, gross. yeah, the- he really does just reach into a guy yeah. like think about that. He puts his hand through the flesh of the man's chest and pulls out his heart and this was PG. Well and this is <gasps> oh this my is,
1: God this is what's so funny about the physical stuff is I won't say it looks more real than CGI because mm-hmm. it you can tell that it's not a man's chest, obviously yeah yeah but there is something about doing it with like clay or whatever they used where you do see the fingers actually get to that point where it sinks and then breaks through the skin. Where yeah. even though you know it, it doesn't look more real, but there's something about that visual that makes it feel more real in a gross way. <laughs> like well, it makes real. it much more off, off-putting. Yeah, exactly. Much more Great unsettling word. to look at. Great yeah. word. You're like, oh, that's the point where the fingers broke the skin. That's gross. Um, I'll also <laughs> say, and, and we're going to we're gonna tread a
0: little close to some of the what holds this movie back conversation, but I'll also point out the scene where Indiana and Short Round are getting whipped also is going in that horror direction a little bit where it's like yeah it's just like man whipping kids take a breath a little bit (laughs) yeah yeah oh boy we'll get to that we'll get to that um what else do you have anything else for why this movie works i mean we
1: have to spend some time talking about harrison ford right
0: yeah so my guy uh thank you i forgot about that i was gonna note uh it's have we talked about him before? He hasn't been in a movie we've done yet. Yeah, oh, we Runner. had Blade Runner, Blade Runner, and we
1: kind of said he was a bad actor. So. We did
0: kind of say that. This movie reminds me of what he has going for him, uh, which sure. is simply that young Harrison Ford has so much charisma. <laughs> I was going to say He's charisma.
1: hot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> has so... So much charisma. And there's something weird about it, too, because you watch interviews with him, even at that time. Yeah. And he's this kind of awkward, quiet, introspective guy. And he gets on screen and he just sort of smiles and he just has a switch inside, I guess, that he turns on. And you're just like, this is the this is the coolest person ever. Yeah. I would do anything to hang out with that guy. Why is he so there's, there's a magnetism there. I'm gushing a little bit, but it was, it just caught me off guard. I was just like,
1: why is he? Yeah. He's just so effortlessly charming. Yeah. No, it's funny. I wrote, I mean, one, I'm not joking. Harrison Ford is a sex symbol. Easy to forget, (laughs) but my goodness, you're like, this guy is the most charming, handsome man uh, on the planet in this movie. But I actually wrote down Harrison Ford doing this kind of role and then like caught myself and was like, oh, he can't do this kind of role anymore because, you know, so much of it is how handsome he is and quite frankly, how charming he is as like a younger kind of person, but it is still refreshing going back to these movies and seeing him like this is his element where it's all they're asking of him is the smile, the charm, one liners and action sequences. And he's so unbelievably good at it. It, It's actually one of those actors that you're like, when he gets off, when he goes wrong, is usually when people ask him to do more than what he's good at, because we ask all actors to act in everything at all times. And we never just let people stay in what they're great at. But he's like a quintessential guy where it's like, this dude is great at this role. And Han Solo and the various different variations of it. And it's just so nice to return to one of these older movies. We are like, he's not trying to do too much. He's just nailing what he's great at. And I love it. He's just really good at this. I want to jump off of that conversation
0: about, about actors in this movie and very briefly, and this is maybe a higher ambition than we normally go for, but I want to write a very small historical wrong. And I want to say that Kate Capshaw, uh, actually does very good in this movie, at least in terms of her acting. She The historical wrong I want to write is that she got a lot of flack for this role. And I think that's very unfair. She's
1: doing what she was asked to do.
0: She's doing what she was asked to do. She is playing the written role and obviously she's taking her direction. And I think that she is very well executing exactly what that role was. There's a lot of issues with the character but I just want to note that Kate Capshaw herself does a very good job. Sure. That's no, the historical didn't. wrong that I momentarily want to write because you did she it. did. She got like flamed for this when this movie I came know. out. It's ridiculous. And it's and that's kind of that's just so unfair. It's like, it, no, that's that's it, not her at all. That's the the writing and the it, direction. It's
1: like blaming Natalie Portman for the prequels of Star Wars, and you're like, what yeah, is she supposed to do? What do you want yeah. her to do? Like, did you, you see read that line and make it <laughs> yeah, sound exactly. and make it sound not stupid? It's yeah, crazy. It's wild. Uh, I got I got two less two last yeah, points, yeah, and these are more funny. But you know, whips and action movies work uh, always like work. Whipping always the guy around better. the the neck and having him hanged by the ceiling fan. You're just like, what a great what a great fight scene. Obviously, yeah. like the battle with the and I guess I would just say all the fight scenes of this movie, like the battle with the slave yeah. driver while he's getting stabbed with voodoo again, we're going to come back to that and what doesn't work. Um, the conveyor belt, stone crushing, yada, yada, yada. It's just, it's just great action sequences. And then here's a, here's a question for us to end on, um, violent revolutions. What do you think about them? Eat the rich, eat the rich man. Did that work um, in this movie? It was, I will say
0: shades of, uh, Ewoks, in terms of <laughs> I do not I do not necessarily buy that even a large number of little kids no. can overwhelm no. those men like that uh, and of course this was Lucas very close to that thing so I don't know I guess he had something on his mind about tiny you know small people children or whatever
1: Right. up probably had hitting. to talk him out of putting Ewoks in this movie he's like no they have to be kids bro he's like but Ewoks <laughs> but <laughs> what but if Ewoks? they were
0: Ewoks so so a little bit of that but otherwise i'm on board i, I love me a good revolution let's do okay. it all right we're gonna take a quick break and then come back with uh maybe why this movie doesn't work back we're gonna start talking about what holds this movie back why this movie maybe doesn't work in some ways and uh let's just do it the elephant in the room this movie is racist plain and simple yep uh and it's 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 actually a little staggering to me that this came out in 1980 or 1984 1983 i forgot uh that's 40 years ago ish i mean at 30 35 36 uh which is a while ago but this is still pretty over the top just to put some context it's insane this, they wanted to they wanted to shoot this movie at least partially in india and the indian government read the script and unsurprisingly said no <laughs> like you can change <laughs> a lot about that. it yeah do you not know that yeah so the so they they had to shoot it i think in sri in sri lanka and in a couple other places good great. um but yeah they the indian government was just said no thank you or you could change things about it and then the production said no that's fine we'll just go somewhere else uh i want to note very quickly so so yeah when we're talking about this movie is racist i i think the thing the key thing because there's people that will debate on this i think mike and i i'm gonna just guess we're on the same page here
1: yeah oh my god this movie's horrifying
0: yeah uh, so I, I want to note very briefly what we're talking about, or at least what I'm talking about. I won't speak for Mike. He's going to have stuff to say about this in a second. But to me, like the key thing about this and the pr- the reason why this is problematic, this isn't good. This is problematic, is that this movie uh, is just, it's totally sold out to uh, to establishing, to reiterating, to doubling down on, to overindulging in the otherness of every non-white character. Yes. Not only the bad guys, but the villagers and, the, and the, you know, the, the, the Asians in the beginning of the movie in Hong Kong or wherever they are. It's just constantly making a punchline out of the fact that these people who are not white are different. Uh, And I say punchline is sometimes it is humor. Sometimes it's just grossness or weirdness or differentness, but all of it is otherness. Yes. And I think people sometimes will say, well, it's just fun and it's zany and it's like an older movie. So who cares? But like the, the, the problem is this is how culture is established. This and other media creates in your mind, an image of what in this example, India and Indians are like. And, I I, You know, people will say, well, that's crazy. I don't watch this movie and then think that they they eat, you know, monkey brains or whatever. But it's about the the mass of culture perpetuating ideas. And it may not be that specific. It it can just be stuff like, oh, they're just weird and different and eat other things. And again, that's creating that otherness, that sense of, you know, these people are different. And... And that's just a problem and, and there's no way around it. We're not going to, again, I won't speak for Mike, even though I think he agrees with me, but I, for my part, I'm not going to talk around it. I'm not going to justify it. It's just bad and it shouldn't be like that. So I don't know what you got, Mike.
1: Yeah. I kind of threw this into a few buckets. So like, and they're almost going down by layers. So every person of color in this movie is a stereotype. And I think that's the one where people would most often try to explain that away by the genre but sure. I think there's this just dark way of seemingly acting like you're capturing a different culture, but you're actually, like you were saying, demeaning and mocking it. Um, and yeah. by inherently doing so, by mocking and highlighting how alien it is, and then acting like that alienness is inherently a negative thing. And that's kind of what you're getting at, right? And I think yeah. the meal at the palace is particularly ugly in this regard. It's like, don't yeah. brown people eat the strangest things. It's essentially the summary of the entire scene. And, and anyways, like you said, I have no nothing to say about it. That's just wrong. It's just not yeah. good. And, and then, I mean, it, what, what's so unsettling to me about this first layer of stereotyping and that othering is that every part of the movie intentionally plays to it, right? Yeah. Like the little kid, Shorty, is an absolute nightmare everything mm-hmm. the way he talks broken again sentences.
0: again not the actor i just want to know no not yeah the actor. no that's, that's what i'm saying the script it's, and the director it's yeah. the
1: way the movie's made that does this like he speaks yeah. he's written to speak in only broken sentences and misspoken american mm-hmm. lines there is literally a line in this movie where he steps on a bug and says i stepped on something i think i stepped on fortune cookies yeah what it's crazy. the hell right yeah and then, like, the music even plays into it. There's, like, string guitar when they meet the Indian tribes, the gongs and bells when Shorty or the Chinese villains show up. It's like, ding, 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 ding. It's wild. Like, and I, yeah. what I'm trying to get at is your point is spot on, but what makes this movie even more unsettling than just the characters aren't fleshed out on purpose is that it's very in- intentional in its decision-making to have every other aspect, even technically, Build on to that problem, right? Yeah. And I don't know what to do with that. I mean, and other than just to be like, it's not good. Um, yeah. And then the other one I wanted to kind of maybe spend more time on is the deeper layers, which it's really two tropes. And I'm going to kick this back to you. But they're two tropes that you see in kind of like you were hinting at often older films than this one about people of color and mostly non-Western peoples. And that is that you see the trope play out over over again that they are either one of two things. They're either one, poor, naked, helpless, and in desperate need of white American help. Or two, inherently dangerous in their intentions or their cultural and religious beliefs and practices. And I don't know which one you want to touch on those first, but they're both deeply embedded in this movie.
0: Well, it's it's funny because I'm not sure if I... I don't think I ever would have thought of this before watching this movie as an adult. In a sense, I'm not sure if I would have had the cognizance to think of it, which is, you know, another aspect of what makes this problematic. Uh, but it's it's a white savior stereotype, I think, is kind of the first yeah, point you're making. Absolutely. Right? That, and it's exactly what you just said, that it's like, OK, well, if you're not white, then like you said, you're either helpless and unable to solve your own problems or you are evil. And the root of the problems yes and that's yeah that that's troubling there's no other word for it. you know it's even extended to i wrote as a completely different point that i'm not super happy about the british empire being represented Dude. As the for good in india yes but that's another aspect of this right that the the white british guy comes in at the end and, so yeah i mean and, even to
1: the point that like the last scene the heroic figures other than the british are the collaborators with the british right yeah. And there's just something really dark about this idea that, you know, the the era of colonialism is mm-hmm. one, a good thing. And even and for the most part, the film doesn't even acknowledge it. And when it does, yeah. it's very slight. Like the British, the British captain is checking on the imperial conquest and that's not presented as a negative thing. And it also implies yeah. that they probably should be doing that because when these people are left with their own devices, they go back to human sacrifice, right? That there is danger you know reminds me of? lurking in these yeah. cultures that if they're not held in check by this colonial power and then the Indian peoples who collaborate with them, then it's going to bubble to the surface and cause violence, yeah. right? That is a yeah. clear undertone of this movie.
0: It reminds me a lot of, uh, I read a lot of history and, and colonial propaganda, follows this exact same line yeah Uh, if you go back you you can read uh, this was a very common theme in british literature especially at the end of the 19th century and sort of at the beginning of the 20th century it all kind of died out with world war one uh this also reminds me a lot of like american sort of propaganda in the uh, 19th century especially about native americans yeah this you know this movie it's almost like if you had a movie where native Americans were were facing some sort of struggle and Andrew Jackson was somehow a hero. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's the, that's the level where it's like, wow, this is, this is not good. This isn't how this played out historically at all. Yeah. And and,
1: yeah. And it really, it really gets dark as it blends with that second trope, which is that these, the, the religious beliefs or even the culture or these people when left are inherently dangerous. Right. Because what this film and this film doesn't pick one. There are people of color in this movie that are depicted as inherently dangerous by intention. And then there are people of color in this movie that are depicted as inherently dangerous because of their beliefs and their, their culture and their religion, and their practices. And, and so like the beliefs of all the non-Western peoples in this movie are depicted as entirely mystical, but not in any deep respectable way. Right. Um, it's voodoo, it's witchcraft. Oh my gosh. Which obviously, Is a double standard because, believe it or not, Western belief systems are not depicted in this absurd way or this shallow way in film. Really? Yeah, I know. Crazy. But even more so, like this idea that they are inherently violent through things like they are depicted as not respecting human life, human sacrifice, stealing children, necklaces of body parts. It's all attributed to their Eastern mystical backwards beliefs. Which, in the context of what we're talking about, is funny because these are the very actions that were carried out far more often in modern history by Western nations through colonialism murder, child stealing, slavery, disembodying people to cause terror. That was the thing that the British government did to these people. And of course, none of it is named, right? Yeah. I'm obviously not alluded to, actually, at all. But it's crazy. It's crazy,
0: John. And, you know, because uh, we could go on on this forever in, in a sense, like I, I think it is important. I think you agree that to make such a strong statement and, and to not really, you know, be wishy washy with it, it to kind of maybe wrap it up a little bit or at least to provide maybe a framework of why we're talking about this. They didn't have to make this movie this way. No. I think that's really critical oh, to mention God. as well that like, you know, if you notice, we said we talked for 30 or 40 minutes about all the good things about this movie. None of them had anything to do with where it took place the, or the, the races of the characters involved, obviously. But what I'm saying is they could have done they, they could have so easily just not done that. Just set it anywhere else. Just just change how change how it treats the characters that aren't white. Change the nature of of sort of the storytelling. That's actually very easy. It has yeah. nothing to do with the success of this movie. So that's what's truly disappointing. Is that it, it's it's sort of like the argument that you hear nowadays often around comedians, which is that there's something that feels wrong about punching down. Yeah. About taking a group or or a, you know someone of a particular sexual orientation or race or gender and making them into a punchline when it's, you know, it's so easy to just make punchlines out of things that do, we do need to take the air out of a little bit and that this movie could have done that. And, and so that's the truly disappointing part about it. Um, do you have any other thoughts? I I think, you know, in a sense, I think we, we covered it, but do you have any other
1: thoughts on that? No, other than what you already said. I mean, it's just like this movie even giving the villains motivation that isn't just like, hey, they believe in Indian religious beliefs, so they must be child murderers. Sure. It's just, it's disappointing. Yep. You yep. nailed it.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then to just bounce from one elephant to the other. Is that a pun? <laughs> isn't it nice to have There's two, an two elephant. elephants yeah. in the room? It's, it's nice to have two. Yeah. <laughs> to just bounce from one elephant to the other. This movie is also sexist. Oh my uh, gosh. And no to way. be honest, I don't have my it's crazy i don't have much to say because it's sort of the same thing as what we said about the races in the movie uh i would say it just this movie creates and reiterates a stereotype once again uh you can make the same arguments it's just playing into the same language and characterization that these kinds of serials uh play into uh you know and 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 that is notable i mean we do have to we want to be honest so let's just so let's point out that the entire indiana jones franchise is evocative of republic serials from like the early, you know, sure. like the 20s and 30s, right? And that yeah, there were a lot of racism in those and there was a lot of sexism in those. Uh but just because of the things we were saying earlier, I you know, I would just reiterate that doesn't excuse it. Um I I would also note that so like, you know, what we're talking about with the sexism in, the, sexism in this movie is we're talking about the character of Willie Scott. Yeah. And the fact that she is just this, you know, blatant stereotype of a woman who cannot engage with the world around her in a realistic way, frankly, which sounds harsh, but that's really what the movie is portraying. Yep. Yep. And you know, I, I, we could go on. I'm sure you're going to have thoughts Uh, just to reiterate something that I said earlier. um, This really does affect how people think about things. I I just want to note that one more time. And you know, if, if you don't think so, frankly, go live in the South for a little while. Yeah. Like that's a little bit, that's a little bit maybe rude or something, but it's just true. Like you'll just, people just say things as though taking it for granted, like, Oh, well, you know, this being around this person, this person who's a woman, she's just going to complain a lot about stuff or they're not, you know, she's not going to be able to do this or that, or, you know, blah, blah. blah. And it sounds benign or it might sound benign. It doesn't sound benign to me, but I think a lot of people would say, well, that's very benign or that's very low stakes. I would just say that over time, those things intensify yeah and it really isn't that that crazy of a thing to go from there into a p- repression of women in fact I know it's not crazy because that is how you go from there to repression of, of women um that's how that's how repression was justified for centuries right for millennia yep was okay well you know these this whole half of of the human race just doesn't uh you know doesn't operate correctly in these things can't handle this can't handle that. Is somehow worse in these regards and you know that's how you get there so yeah. so it is yeah. important to say that that's not true and that's not uh that that is stereotyping and and that that's that's what it can't that's what over time that cultural reinforcement leads to
1: so I don't know what do you have anything on that well yeah I mean just of course it's like how do you end up with us thinking, well, a woman can't be the president of the United States because she's ditzy. It might be her time of the month or, you know, or she's just going to be a B word. Right. Or yeah, it, it, it comes from repeated narratives and yeah. that are not grounded in reality that are grounded in stereotype that are propagated by culture. And of course that's how it builds. So, I, I mean, it's hard cause we sit here and we're like, we almost want to make, apologies for us being too hard on this movie and i don't think we should um sure it's it's just like no this this is how culture is created it is important to call it out as it creates toxic culture period yeah right and and i mean yeah i i, I guess i'll just breeze through this because again it, it's really two tropes at play in this character you know one women are helpless freaking idiots right She's literally just there to be like, "Oh man, aren't women just stupid?" Um, or to they they're objects of sex, and yeah, you know, the first trope, the helpless idiot women trope. Every single scene she's in, she's a butt of a joke. Opening scene, I'm just yeah. gonna blow through some of these. Uh, they bring out the statue, and she goes, "This is Narachi. He's a really small guy, right?" Um, yep. Or Indiana Jones gives her a gun in the car. She throws out the window and says, "It burnt my fingers and I cracked my nail." Or when they go to jump out of the plane in the boat, a hey, boat, we're not sinking, we're crashing. Um, everyone else but her can ride an elephant and she can't. And she doesn't even know her right and left directions apart, right? And then, of course, yeah. there's the dinner scene and you have the woman who's constantly overreacting and acting stupid while Indiana Jones has an intellectual back and forth that is the exposition of the movie, right? Um, yeah. And then the last one I wrote down is, you know, his interactions with her are almost entirely her getting something wrong and then him explaining it to her while calling her sweetheart. And you even see the little kid, call her a doll and tell her to shut up at one point, which if this is a smarter movie I would attribute to being commentary on generational sin, but it's not, this is intentional writing. And that's a problem again. It's just ridiculous. It's not a real person. This is a, this is a caricature of women and it becomes a stand in for women in adventure settings. And of yeah. course that influences how we think about women when it actually comes to struggle, tribulation, trial. Right. Um, yeah. And then I don't know how and much you time know, you want to spend on the sex object, but we can talk about that too. Well,
0: well, well j- just real quick. I was going to say like, again, reiterating sort of a point from the racism conversation. Like, I think it's also important to remember you can have a fun, bumbling, uh, uh, comic relief character and not tie those parts of them to their gender. Yeah. You can do that. Absolutely. Um, and so, so yeah, just to reiterate that, you, it's not about like, oh, well, we can't have fun and we can't have, you know, characters that are bad at stuff or whatever. You can do that. But this movie explicitly ties it to her gender. Yeah. That is why she is bad at things. That is why she is bumbling and kind of stupid. Um, and so I think that's the... That's the key. That's what we're talking about. Absolutely. It gets tied to her gender. Yeah,
1: there there are bumbling, stupid women in the world. There are bumbling, stupid men in the world. Yeah, exactly. This movie is very clearly making a statement that it is because she is female. And these are traits that mean that they cannot navigate a jungle. And it's dumb. Yeah. So the other trope that's even darker, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but the women are sex objects trope and I actually feel like we owe the world an apology. And because my wife gave me this feedback actually from our first episode of Blade Runner, where we did not talk about the sexual assault scene nearly enough. But there yeah. is a 70s and 80s obsession with sexual assault as being a pathway to real romance that is deeply disturbing, right? He gropes her in the car sure. to get the antidote, and she responds by saying, Oh, you, essentially, right? And then she, for whatever reason, is seduced by him because he brings her fruit, you know, and the only reason she doesn't want him is because of her pride. And she ends up being the one who works to get him. And then, like, when she goes to leave, he obviously uses the whip to drag her back to him. And the whole time, you're like, this relationship started with um, sexual assault, and then the rest of it was demeaning abuse. And the woman in the, is like, oh, I love this. This is so charming, Right. It's wild. And that's on top of her obviously just being there to be lusted after in general. So I don't have much more to say about that other than it's disturbing, but it's again, it was in Blade Runner. It's just a part of this time, but that is not an excuse. Right.
0: Yeah. It's funny actually. uh, You know, there's something some Mike and I were actually talking before we started recording about a completely different topic uh, that relates a little bit though. We were talking about the way that, that young men, will resort often to for lack of a better word, treating a woman kind of like an asshole in order to get, you know, affection and and, and sex and, and whatever. And again, it gets tied culturally to things like this. And I think it's easy to, to you know make that into a okay, well, young men are just stupid. And it's like, well yeah, to an extent, because they're young. But also I think there is something to, to say about the way that these movies or or this kind of cultural thing is painting that picture is saying if you struggle uh getting women to like you then do this and that changes that and yeah it sounds dumb but that's how you live most of your life is is taking what culture is presented to you as this then that a then b and you apply it and it's it's actually to me unsurprising that young men will apply that logic. I mean, it's it's wrong to just to, to, you know, in case it needs to be said, it's bad. But it also, it's like, yeah, that's why, though, is things yeah. like this. Like this overwhelming cultural image of you have to be tough, you have to be... It's it's toxic masculinity is the word. Yeah, I don't know if we absolutely. actually said that word yet. But it's toxic masculinity. It's like you have to be tough, you have to push you know, kind of push them around, kind of, you know, make yourself seem uh, like you don't care, whatever... And if you don't, and and that's how you do it. And so, yeah, I think that's the problem with this. Okay. So we obviously had some really deep seated issues with this movie. I do have a couple lighter things just to touch on briefly. Uh, I guess lighter is a funny word because the first thing I wrote down in terms of other stuff that that doesn't work with this movie, frankly, this movie is too dark. I'm just going to say it. That's fair. I seldom rewatch this movie. Uh, It's not be I, I think the reason part of the reason why I seldom rewatch it it's not the same lighthearted fun as the other indiana jones movies uh you know i wrote down i don't need to see little slave kids say i pray to shiva to just let me die i don't need that <laughs> in my in my fun in my fun adventure romp um <laughs> And I, I said these words earlier, but, but I'll reiterate them here. Certain scenes I would actually call gleefully sadistic. Just, yeah, frankly, yeah. too much. Yeah. Uh, I reiterate, again, the scene where uh, Short Round and Indiana Jones are getting whipped, tortured. Again, I was just like, I, I just don't need it. And, and, frankly, I don't think the movie needs it. Sure. Um, just to note, uh, in terms of, like, the historical perspective or the context. So, uh, Lucas and Spielberg were famously both going through... Uh, relationships ending Lucas was being divorced from Marsha Lucas and uh, Spielberg I don't think I'd have to look it up I don't think he was married but he was going through a breakup Uh, and they have both cited that for for this movie and actually uh, Empire Strikes Back for Lucas in terms of why they are so much darker Mm, interestingly that really helps Empire Strikes Back uh, and I think it kind of hurts this movie So so yeah you know we don't have to do too much about that I would just know it. I think it's just too dark. I just goes a little too hard. And like we said earlier, this movie could have worked without that. I think it would have been a perfectly fun, fine movie if it just, you know, let off the gas pedal a little bit with some of this stuff. Yeah. That's the only other yeah. you know, thing I have for why this movie doesn't work. What, what do you
1: got? Um, well, I mean, we already touched on one. I think the writing behind the non Harrison Ford performances just guts this movie. Um, some yeah. of it's good, but a lot of the characters are just doomed from the start by how they're written. Um, ha! And doomed this is kind of doomed. Ha ha! I doomed. meant to do that. I'm so funny. You did um, it. You're welcome, world. This is the you Avatar. You could be a screenwriter podcast. on Temple of Doom. Or Avatar. Anyway. Um, oh so, my God. <laughs> you know, and then there's like ones that blur the line of what the film's trying to do on purpose, which I think are fine, but like the special effects, um, you know, like the bat she catches is. It's like the rubber alien from alien. Um, Sure. It's like just bad. Um, The plane crash scene in particular, you're like, my goodness, this is so fake. Those are clearly like duffel bags in a boat, (laughs) like falling through the sky.
0: Yeah. There's a couple things like that, where if you're, especially there's a lot of stuff where if you look closely, if you were like, imagine, you know, this is just a hypothetical, but imagine you were like a 10 year old kid and rewatched movies like this, you know, eight times in one day. I mean, that'd be crazy if someone was a little kid. Uh, but when you do that, you do start to notice, Oh, that, yeah, that, that is clearly very not real. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I mean, and a lot of that is just product of the time as well, but
1: it's worth noting. And then, um, I actually think this movie should have ended with the minecart chase because the final, the actual like final action scene in this movie is, is just bad. Um, you know like the rope bridge the entire scene for the most part um, even the line like Mularam prepare to meet Kali in hell like it's just on one hand I want to like it as classic camp on another hand I'm just like this scene sucks and I don't really know what to say and I think it might almost be entirely the effect of the people falling and then it shows like those really crappy alligator heads and then they're just like chewing on clothing <laughs> and it's like they ate them real quick right um we don't often disagree (laughs) i I would lightly
0: disagree on that though i actually because we were talking earlier about scenes you remember yeah i always and it could have to go back to like a slight fear of heights but i have always remembered that last uh that that rope bridge scene of just like and and if nothing else just like oh that's i would not want to do that that kind of terrifies me uh, so I don't know. It, it works for me. I get where you're coming from. Though. Do you like I don't the alligators? The
1: strongest scenes.
0: I didn't like. Yeah, the alligators are rough. That, do you that like, is a hard. Do you
1: like the bad aim of arrows from the bad guys, and then one actually bounces off his back? okay if we're just did, gonna, you catch that? If we're, if we're, did you catch that if we're just gonna <laughs> well, we could do this all day we don't have to well i thought it was i i, anyway. I have to assume that they got tired of shooting it where none of them hit them because one definitely hits them and just bounces off and you're like oh that's yeah. not great <laughs> i
0: i did notice that too i was like oh wow that that you just got hit by an arrow uh, okay i guess we're good with that that's really uh funny. okay i think that covers up All the things wrong with this movie. Not too much to say, actually. Uh, You know, pretty light in terms of problems with this movie. Yeah, that's it. That's all I got. Yeah, nothing too bad. Nothing too bad. Let's move on. We have uh, stray thoughts. This is just, we're just going to go rapid fire. Mike and I have both written down a few, nearly all of mine are questions for some reason. Uh, But we've written down a a few different stray thoughts. We're just going to go back and forth. Mike, why don't you go first?
1: Oh yeah. I got, I got these. So, I mean, we'll just start with, can you jump out of a plane in an inflatable boat and survive? Can you ride that boat off a mountain into well, rapids? Well, did it. So, did they? Yeah. Did
0: they do this one? They did this one. Uh, in terms, not so much the rapids part, but falling from a plane and using an inflatable raft as a parachute. Uh, the answer is no. To, to, all, to all of our great surprise, <laughs> oh, dang, apparently I really, that... I really thought you were going to tell me it worked. I don't know why. <laughs> you were, were you so excited for a second that, yeah. like, whoa, maybe okay. they were on to something. No, you would nope. die. Don't okay. do this. Well, never mind. Can I... So let me play off that real quick, too. So Lau apparently owns this airplane and uh, knows the pilots. Do you think he was mad that his pilots didn't just kill Indiana Jones and get the diamond back in the Yeah. Fly? Like, do you think... Do you think they come back and it was like hey so you killed them right no we like you know we left him in the plane and then we parachuted out so he's probably dead and then lao's <laughs> like what why, why would you do that why'd you waste the plane there's so <laughs> many issues with it
1: i didn't even, i didn't even and this is once again this is the best part of plot holes is there only a plot hole if you catch him while watching the movie thought literally didn't cross my yeah. mind on the rewatch i don't know why
0: no <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a straight thought. It's just That's something really that came funny. up. I'm like, I don't know if that would have played out that way. That's really funny. Anyways, what you got?
1: Uh, do you have one? It's your turn. I, I just did mine. That, oh, that, that was, was one yours. Of mine. Oh, was oh was follow- yeah. I thought you were following up. Uh, yeah. So no. I would really like to meet who designed the underbelly of this palace with all the traps and bugs and, you know, the lava <laughs> river and stuff. Um, but mostly I it's a kind of a two part question. Would you go to a church with the Temple of Doom vibe? And then is this the epitome of are we the baddies? Like who lives in a place like this and thinks that they're on the right side of history? Just a question.
0: Did you say epitome just now?
1: Yeah. Epitome. Oh, I did. Yeah. Am I the baddie? <laughs> I, you know, I hate to call you out like that. I just,
0: I just, I had, I couldn't let it slide. I yeah, just you hate to ask. see it.
1: I know, John. You, you hate, hate to see, to
0: see it. about, yeah. Uh, I I kind of forgot the second question because of the epitome thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'd have I'd have questions going to a church with this this
1: setup. I I might like can you think that you're the good guys is really the question I'm asking. If you live in this place and you're just like, yep, we're we're the good ones. We did it (laughs) like all the skulls and fire lava pits and whatnot. I don't know. I'm just curious. Ripping the guy's heart out.
0: Uh, I'll also note in terms of talking about the the construction and design of the temple, uh, they built a trapdoor beneath the statue, I guess, because the one guy falls into yeah. it Indiana Jones is about really to get great. Him. That's just weird. I yeah. just wanted to note that you you don't often build trap doors and you don't often make them so
1: convenient for
0: I'm not sure why they thought it would have come up where they needed it, but uh, more power
1: to them. That's, That's what I'm saying ahead. i w- I want to meet the designer because they thought of everything. It's really quite impressive.
0: It's incredible. I wrote down, uh, was Indiana Jones throwing the rock at the slave driver? The most half-assed attempt at heroism in any movie ever.
1: You're going to love this. I wrote when Indiana Jones, yeah. threw the rocks at the slave driver, what exactly was his plan?
0: <laughs> it's crazy. That's all he does. He, he looks at, he's like, that's bad. And he picks up not even like a big rock, just kind of a vague rock and throws it at the guy. And I'm like, really? That was the oh play. My huh? Gosh. That's really funny. Uh, uh, let me, I'll just go next then. So no other kid before Short Round had thought to use the axe on his own chains. That nah. bugs me. I'm just yeah. like, so they're handing them all axes. They're all in chains. Short Round has a moment where he's like, oh, I could use this on my chains. And then he does. And then he escapes. No one else thought that, huh? No one else had that moment.
1: Okay, sure, well, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically the same thing again i have the same question is just like hot take the bad guys in this movie need a project major manager and maybe some strategic leadership because like one kids are kids effective slave labor for mining i mean i guess they are for a lot of things but like how much rock tunnel are you gonna get with like a horde of eight-year-olds i'm just curious um two you're giving them weapons that can apparently break the chains not great yeah and then three, Not, if fire nope. snaps people out of zombie mode, why is the temple full of fire? It just seems like there's a lack yep. of strategic leadership.
0: Man, I never thought about that. There's fire everywhere. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> You're like, who planned this? <laughs> you guys are bad. Yeah, this wasn't a great call. <laughs> uh, what else do I have? Oh, how exactly does ducking make your minecart better able to, make it to land a jump? You know, that just always bugged me. I guess it's a center of gravity thing, but it still doesn't, it doesn't seem that relevant. Like they, they're they coming up on the jump and he says, duck, and they all duck and then they, they jump, they make well, the jump. And, and I just don't think that was that valuable of a an action to make.
1: Yeah. It, I mean, and it's funny because I feel like that's one of those things that might not do anything, but I could totally see myself doing it in the minecart <laughs> where I'd be like, oh, this is helping. Everyone duck. <laughs> like, this is giving oh, me hey, maybe a delusion a good- of control. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know what maybe it was a great thing to play the movie i, uh, I mean uh, i'll accept that it,
1: aren't we all in this life on a minecart ride that we're not in control of and we might just die at any moment and we just do silly things like that to give us the delusion of it
0: wow is that one of your stray thoughts <laughs>
1: yeah just throwing it out there
0: no that just okay. came to
1: me in a dream
0: <laughs>
1: Wow, it was a vision uh, i have one more
0: i have one more yeah. um how is indiana jones still an atheist? So it's it's worth it's worth breaking down what I mean exactly. This movie is technically a prequel, but in a way that wouldn't matter. At the beginning of every movie, he's always like super skeptical about yeah. whatever uh uh you know spiritual thing MacGuffin they're going for. It's the Ark of the Covenant, which technically takes place after this movie. <laughs> Remember, because there's a prequel. Yeah. At the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark, he's like Uh, all that hocus pocus who cares about that at the beginning of last crusade he's like I don't care about the cup of Christ I'm here for my father whatever it's like dude at some point shouldn't you remember that like oh wow I, I did actually see so I did actually see a guy rip a heart out of someone and then the guy keep living and then he burns in fire. Uh, so yeah, maybe there is some, some spiritual element to the world. I don't know. I just think at some point that would have occurred to him, but yeah, but what, 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 what what do I know? It's kind of funny. Anyways, you're
1: like, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have no response. I don't know. Maybe,
0: <laughs> maybe this like... movie is making a, a strong statement about how we stick uh, to our belief systems in the face of overwhelming evidence, but uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe I don't. I don't. I don't think so. But it's just crazy to me. I must say, do you Anyways. think the
1: writers who wrote really Scott's character were thinking about that? <laughs> Taking things that deep? I don't think they were. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I'm,
0: I'm going to note something real quick because people, I think, sometimes read weird things and the things that people are saying. I am not saying that there is any overwhelming evidence for believing in these kinds of spiritual objects. I just want to note that because I you know why I'm saying it Mike? Because I was once in an evangelical church camp where someone played a clip from Raiders of the Lost Ark as <laughs> evidence of God's power and I want to note I'm I do not believe that. I I think that's stupid as anything. I just want to note that. I'm not making that argument. Well, I'm just saying it's crazy that within the framework of the world of the movies He's still an atheist. These are Anyways. these
1: are documentaries, after all. But sure, whatever. As we all know. Yeah, so I got a few more. Oh, if that's you want all me, I got. You want me to breeze through them? Yeah, yeah. Uh so yeah, related yeah. to the spirituality or the um mm, that's not the right word for this. The magic of this movie? I don't know. Uh the chest ripping is very confusing. So I I was under the impression coming into this movie on the rewatch that the chest ripping was part of the ceremony where he got the power to do that as part of this, whatever. Um, yep. but then when they put Willie or they go to put Willie into the fire pit, they don't rip out her chest, which yeah, don't get that one. Um, so but then could, later can cut in real quick. Yeah.
0: Uh, I, I did have that written down. I decided it wasn't a problem because they really play into that. The guy's about to do it. And then he looks at Indiana Jones and is like, oh, so actually you should come as part of your, you know, now that yeah, you're on our okay. side, you should really be the one to do this. Sure. So I just sort of accepted that. I, I mean, you're right. There is weird that they just don't do it with her. I just accepted that was part of that little moment where it's like, oh, well, actually, Indiana Jones will do. Yeah. As a person of color, he's of just this.
1: naturally cruel and wants Indiana Jones to murder his girlfriend. <sighs> anyway. Um, and then, but then later... He just like randomly busts it out against Indy in that final fight on the bridge. That is, so I yeah, guess is a weird heart tape. ripping has nothing to do with the practice. It's just like his thing. I don't know. It was just <laughs> interesting. I definitely never, just I never thought of it that way. But I yeah, thought he it was like, a he just
0: wanted to do it
1: spiritually empowered necessary part of that ceremony. And it turns out he just does it. That's all I'm saying. Um, He's just a big fan, Mike. It's a hobby too. <laughs> so, they say love your work. <laughs> Related to that, John, uh, is this the first Saw movie?
0: Huh. It's so uh, let's start here. I've never seen a Saw movie. So, well, it's so. a lot of
1: trap rooms and people getting murdered in horrific ways. But go on.
0: Huh. Huh. There's maybe a, a argument there. Yeah, I thought so. That's all I got. I I, yeah. I can't I can't expand on it. I so, can't. I'm sorry. And then
1: uh last two, the first one's real quick, um, not gonna lie, Willie threatening to give them a bad review when she gets back to America's classic twenty twenty Karen crap. So I don't know, I'm not sure if you remember that's that right. line, but she's yeah. like about to get killed and she's like, I'm gonna leave you a bad review and you're like, that's pretty foreshadowing um yeah. kind of ask of I'll carrot. say it. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I thought we, it was. We good. hated on a lot of things about that character. That's pretty funny. I like. It made that. me laugh. And then, um, yeah, this is like I'm really workshopping this one, but I want your thoughts. Is Mala Ram the villain of this movie? Is he just like the bad version of Killmonger from Black Panther? Like he he's working to fight against imperialism, and you know has all these lines about uh, defeating the oppressor and yada 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 but at the same time he has done the depth of killmonger like you think killmonger came out of them looking for a less racist version of a complex character you did make
0: me i can't speak to that necessarily i will say you 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 did just make me interested in there's there's a really interesting way of rewriting this movie yeah you could so yeah you if you made the you can make the temple of tomb people the good guys It'd be a bit it'd be a bit hard, but I think you could do it. I, I think there's something to that. And then they get wiped out by the white uh, oppressors. That kind of works. Yeah, that's there's there. a, I mean there, it's
1: it's there's a more insi- yeah. like serious and more morally vague version of this movie without all the racism that asks hard questions. I mean this one doesn't do it, but that's what I'm saying, yeah, it kinda works. Yeah. Like I said, workshopping works. that take. And then yeah. I mean, related to that, uh Mullah Ram has a killer smile. Like, have you seen Pearly White's more beautifully oh, shown great. off in a movie? It's awesome.
0: So actually, I have two quick things to tell you about. So the actor is Amrish Puri. Uh, just two fun things. One, he had to shave his head for the role. Ended up really liking it and using it in a lot of his later roles because he was like, "Ah, I looked a lot oh, better and more nice. menacing. St- all, second thing is Steven Spielberg called him out as one of the most effective villains he'd made in any of his movies. I, think
1: I don't that's know fair. what that
0: says. But yeah, I think it is fair. Uh, I mean, again,
1: so yeah, he is not a bad actor. He is the racism is written into his part of the script. He does that what is he is, right. asked, is asked to do incredibly well,
0: and yeah. he has a
1: great smile. So
0: and he has a great smile. I I joined that cult on the strength of that smile.
1: I mean, did you people see the, join people did, like join up with Joel Olstein for less. <laughs> I mean, he has a good smile too, but not nearly the decor of the Temple of Doom. Let me tell you that how about this how about this wait, wait, wait. rewrite this movie <laughs> with Olsteen. but the temple of doom
0: is beneath joel olstein's church uh, I'd right see
1: that movie. right
0: i would see that movie so fast joel olstein <laughs> ripping someone's heart out of there
1: oh, my as he oh, oh my god holds it up i would see that oh my goodness this, this, is is a a <laughs> this is a great idea get
0: sam rockwell to play joel olstein
1: oh no john my heart I can't take it. Oh no. It's too it's uh, like my movie. It's like if Mike Overstreet was given a movie for Christmas, that would be it. If I ever
0: become a billionaire, this is what I'm doing. I'm I'm not gonna help people, uh like a true billionaire.
1: <laughs> well, I'm not a movie.
0: Yeah, so you're good. <laughs> so I'm okay. Uh okay, stick around. We're gonna come back with essays. Hey guys, welcome back. This section of the podcast we call essays or sometimes monologues. We are inconsistent. Uh, basically, Mike and I have each kind of dove deep into some aspect of this film. Uh, I think, you know, we, we start this podcast by mentioning that we take these films too seriously. And this is where that really, really comes to fruition. Uh, so we both have some element that we've just just really zeroed in on. Uh, and I think it'll be fun. We're going to discuss it a little bit. Uh, I believe I'm going first this time, right, Mike? You are correct. Okay. Fame and fortune, kid. Fame and fortune. I don't remember the first time I watched Temple of Doom, but one thing I have always remembered is how distinctly jarring it was to hear that line from Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, the hero, the good guy, the person who does the right thing. And to be fair, the character was never really portrayed as a saint or as an embodiment of virtue, but I had still come to see him to identify him as a hero. And re-watching the movie recently, I did find it just as jarring, just as subtly different to the character from his other movies. And that got me thinking about what exactly is motivating Indiana Jones in these adventure movies. Because I think that every one of these movies has a clear hierarchy of motivating factors. Usually there's a primary motivation and a secondary motivation. Uh, Just as a brief side note, the reason for this is that it's great screenwriting. Tying multiple goals together gives the plot room to bounce around, which helps keep people interested. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, his primary motivation is obtaining the Ark of the Covenant. His secondary motivation is keeping Marion safe and his tertiary motivation is stopping the Nazis. Now, that precise order, and in fact, the motivations altogether are shuffled and altered and adjusted in the course of the film, but but I think that breakdown kind of gets at the gist of the character in the film. In The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones' primary motivation is keeping his father safe, his second motivation is getting the Holy Grail, and his tertiary motivation is, once again, stopping the Nazis. Now, notice that there's a subtle change between those two films. Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first Indiana Jones film, saw him struggling to reconcile his primary and secondary motivations. At one point, he's ready to rescue Marion and just get to safety, but he can't do it because the Ark of the Covenant means so much to him. The third film, The Last Crusade, also features the struggle between competing motivations, but the tension is actually flipped. He's ready to walk away from the grail, but he can't because his father means too much to him and the grail is the only way to save him. So between the two movies, we see our character put into two similar situations and we actually can sort of pull out something of a character arc in how his attitude and priorities change. And given such an arc, it makes Temple of Doom's spot in the middle all the more fascinating. In Temple of Doom alone, Indiana Jones' motivations are plain and largely selfish. His primary motivation is not just the Shankara Stones, but explicitly fame and fortune. He actually says it over and over again. And for the first half of the movie, he arguably has no secondary motivation. This is especially disturbing, given that he has already been told about a village's children being kidnapped, that he has already been given hints about a dark, demon-worshipping, human-sacrificing cult which has arisen. But neither of those things seem to motivate his character at all, at least until he hears the screams of the child slaves. It's actually a very small moment and, and maybe even easy to overlook in the general hubbub and action of the movie, But for the character, I think it's a critical moment. The scene is in the Temple of Doom itself, after Indiana steals the stones. He begins sneaking away when he hears a whip crack and a young voice cries out. He pauses and looks back. He hears it again. He hesitates. And then he turns around to find the source of the screams. The thing that stuck out to me re-watching Temple of Doom this time around is how this small character moment presents arguably the clearest internal tension this character ever faces in any of these movies. It's the breaking point between hero and not hero. Based on what he has said and done so far in this film, Indiana ought to just leave. His fame and fortune is in his hand. He's expressed no other motivation so far. For the character to turn around and investigate the suffering, which before now was just a peripheral to his adventure, represents actual character development. Now, let's back up a bit. There are many, many reasons, a lot of which we've discussed by this point, why Temple of Doom is often glossed over in favor of the other two movies. Most of those reasons boil down to some version of it's a darker film, which is true and and a fair thing to say. But in a small way, this particular journey that Indiana goes on, this particular struggle of motivation is just as sobering a take on the iconic character as any of the gore or the violence or the dark themes. What occurred to me is that, even as a little kid, I hated the idea of my hero character not always wanting to do the right thing. I felt almost betrayed by the way he was driven forward out of desire for fame and fortune, even after knowing there could be bigger stakes involved. And we can debate whether that internal struggle is out of place in a fun adventure movie. But out of place or not, it's something that has stuck with me through the years, if only for how little I see it in other action and adventure movies. Think about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or Star Wars, or Lord of the Rings. All of them feature characters who struggle with their motivation to become a hero, who struggle with choosing between the simple option that's good for them or the difficult option that's good for others. But what's surprising about Temple of Doom is the blatant selfishness of our character before that progression. Usually in a modern action-adventure story, it will present more like Spider-Man. Peter Parker is an incredibly virtuous person, and the one time he does something for his own benefit, it comes back to hurt someone he deeply cares about. This sets the character up to always be heroic, to always choose the right thing out of the pain that he has experienced. The thing is, I think that perhaps subconsciously, we all like our heroes to be like that. To have a baseline morality that lifts them above the pettiness and selfishness we associate with our own struggle to do the right thing. And again, I think you can make a very good argument that action-adventure films... By definition of escapist entertainment, ought to feed that desire. I would never try to claim that Temple of Doom is actively trying to push against this archetype, is actively intending to set itself up as something which transcends the genre and how it examines heroic motivation. The most likely reason the story is written this way is because it was just a darker movie in general. But, even if just accidentally, I think the way the character's motivations are established and most especially the way I and many others responded to those motivations is very intriguing. I think that on a primal level, Temple of Doom made me question just who these heroes were that I was watching. As a kid, that meant that I shunned it in favor of sunnier visions of what heroism looked like. But that character arc, the chilling line delivery, fame and fortune, that all stuck with me. And I wonder now how much more effective a vision of a hero that really is. Because I think we all start our own journeys in much the same place, ego-driven, self-centered, seeing the world as a thing outside of ourselves which we can use for our own gain. Indiana changes in the course of the film and gives up on his fame and fortune in order to right a wrong. In the movie, it's a few seconds of hesitation. In our lives, The same process might take years to manifest, but that's the key, it's the same process. We have to go on that journey, we have to start at that selfish place. Maybe I didn't like this film because it was so dark, but maybe, just maybe, I didn't like this film because it made my hero look too much like me. And if nothing else, I know that has stuck with me throughout the years. So, Mike, I have a couple questions for you. Uh, do you, I don't know, do you have any... I have some questions, but just in general, do you have any responses to that?
1: Um, yeah. Well, not... I mean, I wouldn't say it's a response, but it is a fascinating, I think, point to make. And I think it's really easy to reflect on that moment as kind of... I don't want to say lazy writing, but it's such a quick turn for the character, right? Sure. Um, that I think you could be like, oh, well, that's just not very well written. There's no evidence that the change took place. And yet, kind of like what you're pointing out, the fact that it's included at all when almost no other action adventure movie even includes a hint of it. I mean, it's admirable. That's all I'd say. Yeah. So, You yeah. know, it's,
0: you actually may have answered one of the questions I have. Uh, my first question is, is pretty low level. I was just wondering if you had a similar reaction to. To his character's motivation in this movie, in other words, why I wrote down is, e.g., am I crazy here? No, uh, I just that was, that stuck out to me so much as a kid. As a kid watching this, this wasn't adult, you know, post-college anal- analytical Jonathan Devine. As a little kid, it was so jarring, and I just remember how much I was like, "Wait, why is he saying he's doing this for fame and fortune? That doesn't make sense." Yeah, Otto, is that is that something you relate to in, in the context of this movie?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I remember it as a kid, but you definitely, I definitely remember thinking it as I rewatched it where you're like, man, uh, Indiana Jones is not the Indiana Jones that I remember from Raiders. Um, you know, it's like this Indiana Jones kind of sucks. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think his greed is fundamental to the character in this movie, and it's not in other ones. You know, it's not to say yeah. that he doesn't lust after riches in some of the other movies or get a twinkle in his eye when he's like, oh, I can get some gold. Um, But in this one, it's like, it is clearly his only driving force to the extent that he does not necessarily care about the lives of the people around him. And that, that's not common to this character in the other yeah. films. So... Or this kind of character. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and if they do have the character that's like i'm going out for treasure and i don't care about anybody you see them start to change well before this moment in the story right they would have included the beginning seeds of them becoming more empathetic or more other focused earlier through smaller choices right um and they wouldn't have kept him as just a total worthless piece of crap for so long, like yeah. they would have included like a small scene where he saves a child, and the person's like, "I thought you didn't care," and he's just like, oh, "Whatever," you know. But it at least gives <laughs> yeah. you a hint that this guy's not as bad as he sounds. This movie commits yeah. to him being kind of trash for a very long time. Yeah. So, and that's that's
0: exactly what is so surprising to me is that it he he doesn't have any redeemable motivation until that one moment, which is well over halfway through the movie. It's yeah. Just, if yeah. nothing else, is just weird, but. Uh, You know, my second question is is maybe a broader one. And and I don't know, maybe you won't have too many thoughts on it. But I wrote, do you see people as wanting their heroes to be separated from themselves? Because that was kind of an interesting part of this as well to me, is realizing that part of why this is jarring is because, like I said, it's a little bit close to home. And I'm not used to seeing that with my heroes in movies. I'm used to them being... You know, and some people would even spin that positively as like, well, they should be an example of what, you know, of, of the best of humanity is, is. And that's part of that escapism sort of thing again. Uh, but I don't know. Do you see that that tension of I want these heroes to not look like me
1: to yeah, be absolutely, different? Than, absolutely. Than me? I mean, I we talked about this before. I work in a church as a pastor and it's it's alarming how you can say every day I'm just a normal human being. Um, with a different job than other people. And yet when you see a pastor make a mistake or, you know, moral failure or whatever, it's amazing how quickly people turn on them. And it's almost always yeah. a feeling of betrayal of, I thought you were better than us normal folks, right? Like I needed you to be on a pedestal and you falling off of it is somehow the shattering of my worldview. And And a lot of pastors put themselves in that situation because they feed that themselves. Don't get me wrong. They put themselves on pedestals, but even the ones you don't, it's still, we have this innate desire to create that separation of, you know, the figures we looked up to, we want them to be above any failures that we might have. Right. And then there's a sense of betrayal when they don't. And I think it's, it's interesting to me. I've, I've sat with this for a while of why that is uh, the pedestal phenomenon, and I think on one hand, there is that, like, a positive version of it, and it's not actually positive, but I'm saying a, maybe less dark, is we do want <laughs> them to be the best of our humanity, right? Sure. Um, whether we intend to or not, we just want a figure that we can look at and say that's the best of us, right? And then there is a sense of, broken, of breaking that takes place when we're like, oh, they're just a schmuck like me. I think the darker one is that we often don't want to, we don't want to accept the challenge that we could also be like the things that they're preaching or their heroism, mm. right? We want them to be separate from yeah. us. Cause if they're just a normal person, then why aren't we doing heroic yeah. things? Why aren't we self-sacrificial? Why aren't we diving like in the Christian context, diving deep into our spirituality? It's like, Oh, well the pastor, he's different from me. And that's why he, you know, meditates a lot and, and does all this spiritual work, but I don't need to do that because I'm not on his level. Right. There's a sure. way of letting ourselves off the hook of taking part in that hero's journey of becoming better people when we put people yeah. on a pedestal. Cause we can't get, we tell ourselves we can't be on the pedestal. Um, we're not them. Think, we're not special. So, yeah, I think that's a great point.
0: And I, I totally agree. It's weird. It, it, there's something very strange about that. How the ultimate function of looking at heroes or, or even role models, you could say that way is that it is, it is letting me off the hook. Like you said, I get to say, well, you know, he's just like that. Yeah. This is just someone who, who's, who this is just part of his nature. And there's something, uh, yeah. That, that's incriminating frankly about like, well, this is someone who does struggle to do what's right, but they still did it. And in a funny way, you know, I, I actually, I've, I've given this little rant to Mike before, but, this is something I find also fascinating about sports figures, so yeah, uh I actually really adore sports players who are who are um wow, that was a very academic sounding way of wording that sports <laughs> players uh, I, such a nerd. I really the, the gentleman <laughs> who plays sport no, I really do enjoy though like like you know sports figures who own the fact that they are not role models Yeah, and who own the fact that are like, listen, you should not look up to me. It was the Um, the controversial
1: Charles Barkley commercial. I am not a role model. It's so good.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that's a, that's a truly tremendous point that gets, that still gets lost on us and that we still want to buy into the, Oh, you know, I want to be like this guy. I want to be like this girl. I want to do this thing like them. And I think the more, the most sober take on that is, you know, obviously you can look up to people and obviously you can have goals and, and aspirations, but there is something truly dangerous about tying that into the entirety of a person when you don't know the entirety of them. And that's yeah. the key, right? Yeah, Is with these role models, you don't know their whole life. And, and it's silly to assume that they are perfect in all these different ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, actually, you know, it's funny, I was talking about sports figures, but a, a a better example of this, or at least a great quote along these lines. Bo Burnham was once asked uh, on a on a like talk show or something something to the effect of, you know, what advice would you have for people? and i'm I'm not going to quote him directly. This is just a paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me. But he said something to the effect of, that's so stupid. Why would you ask me? what to do with your life. Yeah. Like, I, I cannot answer that for you. And he had this great analogy where he said, people will ask like pop stars, like, you know, pop stars will say to people, like, you just need to believe in yourself, I think is what he says. And he says, that's a little bit like asking a lottery winner how to become rich. Yeah. And they say, just, just play the lottery, man. It's going to work. And thinking that that's going to work for you. It's like no, don't you shouldn't take any of these people's advice. They are just people like you and lots of times they're just people who got lucky. And yeah. yeah. And and again, it's just a more complex view of of role models and of heroes and I think most of us want but it's still it's so important to keep that in mind. So so yeah.
1: Yeah, and and it's funny, it's like two thoughts. One, the most the people I would call a role model as I get older are the people who have struggled the most and have been open with that struggle and, you know, don't hide it behind a veneer that they're perfect. In fact, they're the ones who are most aware that they're deeply flawed or increasingly the people who have the most peace and they have the most comfort in their own skin. And they're the ones who are often trying to be better the most. And those are the people I just, as I get older, am drawn to not the people who are like, look how amazing I seem to be. Um, but also, yeah, there's this weird thing because the other side of it, a lot of it's luck. And then a lot of it is, I don't know. It's like, I, I imagine you have this with music too, where, but it's definitely with public speaking where people are, are so desperately want to attribute how good you are at, say, preaching or, or playing guitar or whatever to innate gifts, right? You're just so yep. gifted. Oh my gosh. And the reality is it's like, hey, if you want to spend you know, 30 grand on a graduate degree and then do this for 10,000 hours, you actually can be as good at me as me at this, probably. And I do think that there's this desire to attribute a lot of heroism to attributes that are just like practice and it's boring and it's not exciting and it's not sexy and it's not inhuman, yep. right? And it's not nat- it's not like a natural trait. Some of it is, sure. hand-eye coordination, probably some of that stuff is, but a lot of it... You know, I think we want the hero to be superhuman because the truth is to become good at a lot of things. It's just not fun. And honestly, it's something that we could do if we would just do it. And (laughs) and I don't want to think that way. I just don't want to think about it. Yeah. But then that's also I don't ever want to make that sound like it's divorced from the luck of it, too, because there's also a ton of privilege to being like I went to grad school. Not everyone can do that. Not everyone can get the ability to practice and work on themselves every day because they're mm-hmm. trying to feed their children or feed themselves. So it's like, anyways, it's a mix of both. And it's always funny to think about where it's just like, Hey, stop. Like, don't be in awe of something I've done because you think I'm great. Just be yeah. like, Oh, this guy worked really hard at this and has progressively got him better. Cause that's the truth of it. And he got lucky and there's nothing very inspiring when I say it that way. Right. <laughs> So straight up, um, I really struggled to think of something to talk about with this movie of any depth, at least something that wasn't pretty intensely negative, like we've already talked about with colonialism, racism, and these other pretty serious topics. Um, And I think I beat this movie up enough so far. However, as I kind of sat with it, I had what one might call, if they were in Pulp Fiction, a moment of clarity or a moment of epiphany. And it was really just kind of realizing the most obvious topic of all. And it kind of came to me. And that is, it's just the central association I've had with this movie and this franchise since I was a kid. Um, I cannot think of Indiana Jones without thinking about the topic of adventure. Questing from home for the glory and thrill of exploration and discovery, Indiana Jones is just synonymous with adventure in my heart and my mind. And he always has been. And for for me, that makes Indiana Jones actually really special when you think of cinema. I think few of any franchises or characters are so deeply associated with a clear central emotion and theme in my life. And I think that's true for Indiana for two reasons. The first one's pretty simple. It's just because Indiana Jones movies were the formative action-adventure movies of my childhood. They were the first ones I consumed, and thus they will forever be cemented as the first memorable invitation to go on an exciting adventure through cinema. But second, And a little more deeply, I think it's because Spielberg expertly captures the movements, tools, and mindsets that are necessary for adventure to take place in this life. It's the strength of this franchise, and this movie in particular. Built into the cinematic bones of Temple of Doom is a roadmap for what adventure is, what we need to find it, and how it must be engaged if we are going to survive it as the adventurer. And for the sake of this podcast, as I sat with and reflected on this movie, I ultimately boiled it down to three key ingredients that form a formula for what adventure is that's baked into the film. The first ingredient is simply openness. And despite Temple of Doom's unbelievable failures at approaching many topics that are far more serious than adventure with any level of openness, I still think it captures masterfully how openness to experiencing the unknown is the critical first step of going on an adventure. Indiana Jones's insatiable curiosity produces a crucial openness to what is mysterious or unknown to him currently, and that is the engine that drives this movie. Whether it's myths or legends, even ones he's skeptical of, he's always seemingly open to exploring what is currently just beneath a veil before him. He never immediately shuts the book on things that at first glance from his reference point seem impossible he always remains at least a little open to the possibility that he might not know what's going on that he might be wrong that he might get surprised and that openness to the unknown lets him even see the potential for these wild adventures it sets the table if you will for what comes next however the engine of adventure doesn't run without fuel which is the second ingredient willingness. This is what makes the ride that is the temple of doom move openness sets each scene. It creates like potential for adventure, but it's the willingness to enter into each uh, consecutive unknown that propels the film forward. Willingness creates that frenetic logical one thing after another movement of the movie that we admire about it so much. Just go back and watch it, and you'll see willingness fueling every single scene. Every single scene begins with an invitation into the next unknown. A secret door opens. A mysterious stranger invites them on a quest. An object of legend falls into Jones's lap. And while each of this is exciting in terms of its discovery in its own right, it only leads to another scene. It only moves the movie forward to what comes after that moment. It only produces adventure because it is followed by a willingness of Indiana Jones to engage, explore, and be led into each one. And this is crucial. The movie does not exist without this ingredient. Without Indiana Jones' willingness to enter into the trapdoor, to accept the quest, to reach out and grab the previously believed to be mythical option, none of the film would happen. Openness alone is well and good, but it only drives forward into adventure when it's fueled by the character's willingness to say yes to the potential adventure in front of them. So we have openness and willingness, the two ingredients that let us identify and enter into adventure when it's before us, but there's one more piece to the equation. You see, the necessary truth about adventure that the Temple of Doom is a little actually too aware of is that it's fundamentally dangerous. Adventuring into the unknown, by definition, will produce situations that were impossible to predict, entirely outside of the adventurer's previous experiences or expectations, situations that, due to their uncertainty, will carry high stakes for those involved. And this produces that third and final ingredient, one that makes Temple of Doom such a thrilling movie, that gives it that stressful, exciting, tense energy that defines it, that highlights how adventure must be engaged, For the adventurer to survive. That is, successful adventures require a singular focus on what's in front of the adventurer at all times. Without this focus, the character would surely fail to make it through to the other end of the wild ride. Because just pause and think about the actual details of this movie's adventure. If I were to read to you every unexpected challenge that Indiana Jones faces in all of their details, you would find his survival to be absurd. In summation, there's no way you would believe he made it through this film, or would have chosen to keep moving forward throughout it. You're telling me that one man had 20 gunfights, jumped from a plane crash in a boat, walked through a tunnel full of bugs, escaped a collapsing room of spikes, battled a heart ripper not once but twice, tangoed in a whip fight, and escaped falling off of a bridge over a horde of ravenous alligators. And survived. Fat chance. He dead, right? In totality, it's simply too much to believe. And yet, this is the magic of this movie. In each individual scene, I found myself never doubting the internal logic and movement of the movie while I was watching it, nor the conclusion of each individual scene, where it led me as the viewer to think that Indiana survival actually made sense in each encounter. Except for maybe the plane crash, that was a bit much. Which means, By the end of the movie, Spielberg has actually done something pretty miraculous. Somehow, he has achieved an outcome for this adventure that within the film, I as the viewer found believable. Indiana Jones' survival and success, despite the fact that in totality, upon reflection, in hindsight, it is absolutely ridiculous and unbelievable. And this is the most effective part of this movie. It's what Spielberg does best in Temple of Doom. He depicts Jones as having this singular focus on what's actually in front of him and nothing else. This intense dedication to one step at a time, trial and error thinking in each individual moment of each individual scene. When Indiana Jones takes poison, he must get the antidote, and he goes so does so by responding to what's in front of him with one logical step out of an, after another until he gets it and is cured. When he gets caught in a trap and the ceiling is coming down, he takes in the information available, reduces the problem to a potential solution, and then step-by-step step pursues trial and error until the logical solution is achieved and he is freed. And the list of examples of this goes on. It's on. It's the whole freaking movie. In every single scene, there is an immediate problem reflection to deduce the nature of that immediate singular problem and then steps taken to bring about its logical solution based on the information at hand. And thus, somehow, though the summation of the movie feels impossible, you exit it feeling like Indy's survival makes sense. I mean, that's crazy, right? Because in each individual scene, this singular focus made the outcome seem possible, one at a time. He identifies the problem, works through the solution, brings it to reality. And then it's on to the next scene, the next unexpected predicament, the next problem to be solved, the next thrilling solution and escape. And before you know it, the movie's done, and he's done that simple pattern following those simple ingredients enough times that poof, he's out on the other side and you never question it. Amazingly, you're left thinking, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) And honestly, there's so much to be said about how that speaks to life. But just like the movie, its lessons are just grounded in, honestly, simplicity. So I'll just be brief. I believe that to find newness, discovery, and adventure in this life, we need these three ingredients. First, we need openness to the unknown. A posture of curiosity, not fear towards what is beyond our experience, to what we have no categories for based on who we are, what we've learned, or where we've been so far. We must be open to being wrong or surprised in order to go on the journey of finding and experiencing anything new in the first place. Second, we need willingness. The willingness to walk forward into that unknown, to engage it, to risk comfort, security, and even safety by saying yes to something or someone unknowable that can only become known through our willingness to enter into experience of and with it. And third, we need to take each step forward along the way of that adventure with a singular focus on what's actually in front of us, one step at a time. Otherwise, the unknown will crush us or make us turn back. If we look too far ahead, arrogantly assured that we know where the next step leads, then we might take the wrong turn or the wrong step and find ourselves wounded by obstacles we could have avoided if we had just stayed focused on what's right there. Or we might not even go on the adventure at all. The conclusion of the journey will look out of reach if we see it through the lens of the summation, the totality of every potential trial, trap, and tribulation between us and it. Altogether, it will just look like too much and we will give up turn back to what we know, return to where we feel secure. But, if in each new experience we hold on to that openness and willingness, and we take each step as singular and worthy of our full focus, as just one more step followed by one more step followed by one more step, well then I believe, like Indy, we can find ourselves at the end of great adventures in this life, looking backwards on a journey that, in summation, in hindsight, feels absurdly impossible, reflecting in awe how we've come so far, how much we've seen, and how grand each step of the journey was along the way. Finny! Yeah, man, I think that was great. Good, I did it for you. I was preaching to you, just Uh, like the old days. Just like the old days. We're back. back. Am
0: I back in Florida again?
1: Yeah, it's back in the beginning of COVID when I was just like, hey, John, you want to hear a sermon today? And you're like, no. And I'm like, too bad. Only one in the room. Anyway, go on.
0: Yeah, Mike used to leave me uh, (coughs) like 45-minute long uh, phone messages just telling me to get my life together. You should start doing that.
1: I should. Get back to it.
0: I think one of – so so my immediate response actually is um, I, I love the idea of the way that it is creating an adventure and what that is teaching you, frankly, about life. Uh, it's funny because you made me realize as you were talking, I, I was kind of thinking about it, that my first encounters with the idea of what adventure means – or at least the most impactful ones for me were not necessarily movies, but actually video games. Mm. I, I was thinking a lot about the Legend of Zelda and uh, Zelda: Ocarina of Time, uh, which I, I maybe the only thing I did more than rewatch those four film series. <laughs> yeah, I was playing yeah. was, play, was replaying that game, and it, it's funny to me that it it almost it almost seeks to train you in that same thought process, and, and yeah. to this day. Those are the games that I, I still find myself most drawn to are ones that are trying to create that same sense of openness or, or trying trying to draw you into being open to trying new things, to poking at them and prodding them, but still having that element, like you were saying, of danger, of of, you know, if you fail at this you lose or your character dies or whatever. Uh, I, I don't I'm not necessarily going anywhere with that. I don't have a profound statement. I, I just think it's fascinating that we have so many different forms of media and I think one of the most universal things that is that, that we find in all these different things is that depiction of adventure as something that is, uh, that does say something maybe about how, how to live your life. Uh, I I don't know. I think I, I agree. I think it's a fascinating part of movies like this, but also also games
1: and different media that we encounter that, that do this, I think. Yeah, no, it's it is, and you're right. I think there's a part of us that like just craves it. So I think, you know, corporate America creates the avenue of express of, of experiencing that sense of adventure in any number of ways that can be sold and safe. Honestly, there's something good about the fact that when I fall off a cliff in Zelda, I don't I'd die forever, like I would if I fell off yeah. a cliff in real life. Um, you know, but then at the same time, that can also hold us back from experiencing things in our life that we might have enjoyed because we're getting it in these other ways, these more condensed kind of, um, I don't know, sellable ways. Anyways, that's a tangent. Yeah. I think what's, what's always interesting to me about it is, you know, and I won't spend any time on, there are real trips I've taken that have been just like this, like going to Guatemala for a few months or going out to Montana to hike for two weeks. And, And each time it's like, one, I don't know if you're anything like me, John, but venturing out into a state I've never been to or a country I've never been to or a country I don't speak the language is always, the hardest part is convincing myself I should do it, right? It's openness to being like, I might be wrong that this won't be a terrible experience because it feels really uncomfortable, right? And then it's the willingness to, you know, do the work to buy the ticket, to get set up, and then to actually go. And then the best time I've had on those trips or when I've kind of just taken it one step at a time while I was there, you know, not overplanned, not assume I know it's going to happen. And that's like a very real example. I think what fascinates me more than that, though, is like the personal journey we go on with like even who we are. Right. There is the hardest inhibitor to my growth is that I assume I know who I am. Right. I assume I am X kind of person and to have an openness to be like, actually, I might be wrong in who I think I am. And then a willingness to do the yeah. work of finding out who I am, to finding out if I am heroic, if I am brave, if I am these positive things that I've always assumed about myself, a willingness to test those things. and And then also a focus on each step of that way so I don't like blow myself up in that work, right? Yeah. I don't just like ruin my life or my image of myself, <laughs> but like I slowly do that deconstruction work and take the data one step at a time and allow myself to kind of slowly... Unravel in a beautiful way so I can actually discover something about myself or who I actually am or yeah. rebuild who I want to be. Does that make sense? I don't know. That's what I, I, it, complete, it completely makes yeah.
0: sense. I, I would build off that a little bit, too, that, you know, I think that one of the most fascinating connections we could make is the way that this adventure mindset, for lack of a better term, I think is tied so closely with the idea of living in the present yeah uh which you and i probably sound like a, a broken record about i think i know we just did her comes up.
1: good gravy that
0: and jaws i think are the two <laughs> most Presence consistent themes in this episode because how and can Avatar. you be more present how could you be more present than uh evading a shark that's true or Bam. watching
1: jaws because we got the of adventure sold jaws. to us on a screen and it was way better than Bam. actually facing a shark
0: So (laughs) at any rate i think that both of these things though they're tied together because by definition an adventure is something where you don't know what's going to come next right yeah Yeah. you you are jumping there's a risk involved uh we we tend to associate risk with, with unknown um and and with not knowing the end of the road like you said you know can i do this can you know this could all go wrong and, and who knows. And that's sort of the stipulation of an adventure. It yeah. requires you to be present because the reality is you always don't know what's going to happen.
1: Sure. Um yeah.
0: And an adventure sort of just pushes that to the forefront, but it's always true.
1: When
0: uh, it, it, it's so, so, yeah.
1: It's so funny. It's like on those trips to unknown places and in personal life, like where do you get hung up the most? it's something goes wrong in your life and then you jump to 18 years later and how it's going to make you into a miserable person who will never be okay again. Right. And now you're living in this place that's not present. You're living eight mistakes down the road and you're bumbling through your life, like completely missing just the problem in front of you. Right. Whether it's man, I got hurt by this person and I need to figure out a way to heal from that. What's the first thing I can do. And with this immediate problem. And if you Mm. just do that, it's going to, be the best thing for you, no matter what happens. You don't know how, you don't know if the ending is you and that person reconcile, get back together, you don't talk to them again. Either way, you still take that one step, the only step that's positive that you can make a choice on, and you begin to heal. And then the rest works itself out from there when you make the next step, right? And it's just yeah. like in Guatemala, like, oh I lost my passport. And then like, well I guess I'm gonna die, you know, a farmer here <laughs> and all these other yeah. things. And instead, it's like, you're right, that that focus on presence draws you. And it's like, how do I resolve the immediate problem And mm-hmm. living your life that way is amazing? Because, yeah, you yeah. can't control what's 14 years away, but you can control if you're doing the next right thing or the next healthiest thing. And if you make enough of those choices in a row, you're going to find yourself where you need to be on the other side one way or the other. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Not to not to belabor this discussion. Uh
0: You reminded me of this experience I used to have and and something I've related. I've related this to a couple people in the context of this conversation. Uh, But I remember when I first I, I was a barista for several years and eventually ended up managing a coffee shop. But I remember how unbelievably stressful it was the first time I was I was manning the espresso machine and there was a rush. So you're standing there. You're making drinks. Drinks obviously take a few minutes to make each. And suddenly there's a line out the door and there's 15 drinks there. Right. And in my experience, a lot of people, myself, especially the first time that happens, you freak out and you're in this place of of incredible anxiety. But the way I eventually learned to get past that is so, so simple. It's astounding. You focus on the drink right in front of you. That's it. And it sounds stupid. That's but it. that's it you just that's like I, and i remember the day that it all came to me that i was sitting there with a rush and i realized i had no control over the customers walking in over the drink 15 drinks down the line whatever all i could do really was make the next drink and i completely zoned out all of my anxiety about the future about you know oh is this person gonna be mad is this whatever I completely forgot about my anxiety of the past. Am I able to do this? Am I tired? Do I not sleep enough? And I just stood there and saw the next drink and just made it. And then saw the drink after that and then made that. And suddenly I was through. And not only was I through, I had done a good job. And it's, it's fascinating how much we forget that. I forget that lesson constantly. I've learned that over and over again. But I think it's getting at what we're talking about, right? It's this problem of... You get so caught up in these things you can't control about the future and the past, focus on what's right in front of you. And nine times, you know, it's not that that's going to become, oh, well, now everything's perfect, but it's making sure, it's making you focus on the things you can control, anyways, because there aren't very many of them. Um, So, yeah, I I totally agree. I, I think that's great. Well, Mike, as always, I appreciate the conversation. I'll be honest, I I wasn't sure how this was going to go. It was a bit of a weird pick. If 10-year-old John had looked at our podcast list and saw that we did Temple of Doom before other Indiana Jones
1: movies, he would
0: have been a little weirded out. But I I actually think this ended up being a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much. And probably a little Uh,
1: scandalized by the amount of uh, uh, sexist and racism talk.
0: Yeah, Uh, well, yeah, you know. (laughs) Okay, before we do the final question, Mike and I have each prepared a, a uh, maybe serious, mine isn't, but a, a final question for the other person. Before that, though, next episode, we're going to be talking about Knives Out, the Ryan Johnson, uh, I think, instant classic from 2019. Uh, one of my favorite movies from a couple years ago, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, Mike, what's your final
1: question? Uh, well, John has a straight white man. Would you say you're more sexist or racist? no i'm just kidding um no real question i was Um, shaking my
0: head as soon as he said straight white man
1: jk real question uh john do you have an item in your life that you'd go back for like indiana jones does with his hat like is there any (laughs) material item that you would put yourself back through the door of that spike room to go get i'm always curious about this this, because he's pretty This is gonna
0: say a lot yeah this is gonna say maybe more about me than i want to But three things immediately came to mind. One of them's obvious. I I did think about my laptop. It is what it is. Uh, I did think about my Nintendo Switch, also possibly self-incriminating. And then at least for these last few weeks in lockdown, I also thought about my uh, hoodie. I have a green hoodie right now that I really like, and, and I would be very sad if it was parted from me.
1: Those are good. Yeah, I like that. I think, I don't know. It's tough. I got some rosary yeah, I was gonna beads say, do you have from Ricky that I carry with me all the time. So maybe that. I was
0: going to say, I, I know what you're talking about. I've seen you had those. Yeah.
1: I think maybe that. It's definitely going to be a gift someone gave me. I don't think anything I bought for myself, I would be like, got to have it. Um,
0: Just to note our difference in personality, all of those are things I bought
1: myself. Yeah, I know. You're so a selfish, know, so yeah, selfish man. I was going to
0: say, I'm a bad person. I don't think I. I think the problem is, I also don't. Like, put I, I leave my gifts in safe place. I'm scared of taking my
1: gifts. Out. Yeah, you're not taking you know them I mean? into like, the Temple of Doom. I got it. That makes
0: yeah, sense. every single thing that was given to me, I'm not imagining a scenario where I have to run to get it. You know what I mean? That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, my last question for you. So, according to the years presented at the beginning of the movies, Raiders of the Lost Ark takes place one year after this movie. What exactly happens to Short Round? Oh, because he's not in
1: that movie at all. I mean, this film opens with one of Indiana Jones's good friends getting murdered as part of his stupid plan. Oh no! Oh no! I'm pretty sure Shorty's dead. Don't
0: say it. (laughs) Pretty sure he's gone. He got
1: sacrificed to the adventure that is Indiana Jones's (laughs) life.
0: I'll say that's even darker now because obviously Indiana doesn't give a crap later. Like Raiders of the Lost Ark, he doesn't even mention him.
1: He doesn't change as much as you thought he did, John he's yeah, still a monster not. he's
0: living his best life
1: oh boy he's still a monster oh, okay maybe she thank went off, you guys maybe he <laughs> went off to go <laughs> live with uh upshaw i don't know that, that seems that's what i'll pretty obno- that, all the stereotypes went to live together in stereotype land called the 1960s hey, great and they never came back
0: <laughs> uh what a rosy future we've painted for everyone <laughs> involved uh thank you guys as always for listening mike thank you for the conversation always a pleasure uh, dude we'll see you guys next episode take care Fame and fortune, kid. Fame and fortune. I remember first watching Temple of Doom. Oh my god, I contradicted that earlier in this episode. <sighs> <Okay>. Damn. <laughs> I have to redo because earlier really, I mean, because I was I was sold it was artistic license here. I just it sounded better to say I remember first watching it. <sighs> okay.
1: <laughs> Let me rewrite That's that. That's really break. funny. <laughs>
0: Alright, here we go.